Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. What's happening today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? <laughs> There's lots happening on the What Difference Does It Make podcast and uh, lots happening with life in general, correct? We're burning up. It's It feels like summer here, so that's all I know. And where our guest is, it's snowing. And that is Martha Wainwright, who wrote a memoir. Tell us about this memoir, Holly, please, because <laughs> I'm not good at describing things. Okay, well, her memoir is called Stories I Might Regret Telling You. And that should tell you everything you need to know about it. She's from a famous musical family. Her father, Loudon, her brother, Rufus, her mom, part of the McGarrigal sisters. She has many stories to tell. Did you enjoy the book, Dave? (laughs) Yeah, this book was great. I've wanted to talk to the Wainwrights. They've intrigued me forever, ever since I saw their Christmas show about 10 years ago. They're just an amazingly talented family. And I want to know more about them. And now the book is out, this memoir, and it was uh, everything I wanted to know. But I want to know more. So we called Martha into our virtual What Difference Does It Make studios. So happy we did. She is a sheer delight, and I think I need to be her best friend. (laughs) All right. All right. Well, we'll see about that. Why don't we just get right into it? Oh, but before we get right into it, because I might chop up some of these, some things will be missing. So where can they find everything they need to find on our on our social media network? You most definitely want to check out the outtakes on our YouTube channel. Just search for What Difference Does It Make podcast and you'll see lots with Martha Wainwright and also on our other social media at WDDIM Podcast. Love it. Okay, now that we got that out of the way, let's get into the studio with Martha Wainwright talking about her book, Stories I Might Regret Telling You, on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Oh, hey, are you at URSA? Is that where you are right now? Yep. All right. First of all, tell us about URSA then. What is this? <laughs> well, URSA is my my s- small music venue slash community center slash wild spot slash everything you want it to be in Montreal. It's on, it's in Mile End and we're, you know, slowly coming back to life after the pandemic. But through this, through the pandemic too, we've been able to do stuff. We've been doing a lot of stuff outside in the, in the lane and it's a, small music venue primarily but also there's a kitchen so we have bakers in the morning and we have events and i run a kids camp in the summertime it's kind of a old school hippy dippy but not so hippy you know kind of uh, a little hippy community space and something i've always wanted to do and now it's actually happening and it's um it's a dream slash nightmare come true <laughs> Uh, and do, did I read, do you have a studio there also? I turned the backspace into a studio to record some of this record uh, that came out about uh, six months ago or last summer. So it's kind of a multi-purpose here. I'll show it to you guys. <laughs> you Ooh, we can get a little tour. There's like a front room. Was a lounge area. Oh, and then we go through here and there's a hallway. It's very and homey. Then at the back, there's a venue. It's very homey. Yeah. There's lots of pictures of the McGarrigals up because we did a little event where we had the McGarrigals. There's a kitchen where we do our cooking in here. And then there's this music space right here. And we do all sorts of stuff in here. We set up tables or it's standing. We have dance parties. We have oh. class. We do, you know, 
And so it's kind of as I described, right? That's yeah. so great. Are, yeah. are the kids camps? Is it like like artsy kids camp? Well, yeah, because it because ha- I'm involved. So yeah, I mean, I do music at the end of the day. But when the, we go out to the parks a lot, you know, because I don't want twelve kids running around here all day. So we you know we gather and then. We have snack and then we go out to the park and do something and go to the pool or go play basketball or go for a walk and then we come back and do some music and then go out and you know it's very whatever the kids kind of want to do except they have to do music at some point so i torture them with music that's good that's awesome the place looks great and i have already put it first on my list we were going to come to up to montreal and uh, we live in la we've that was going to be our anniversary trip and i've already decided oh. it's going to be my first stop oh my god great great <laughs> Uh, is your camp much like your your music video we saw for uh, Love Will Be Reborn? Is that what's going on there? Just kids playing uh, medieval games or what? Exactly. The- I give them all swords when they come down and every morning. Weapons. <laughs> Okay, so we could talk a little bit about Love Will Be Reborn. And actually, the video, there's two boys in there. Who are these boys? They're my kids. They are. Okay. <laughs> they sleep in the forest, so I see them every month. <laughs> nice. they're, they're my two kids. and. They originally, you know, some I had gotten some treatment for the song, you know, by a director or production house. I mean, videos nowadays are not, they're not as expensive as they used to. You know, they're just kind of there for YouTube or whatever. And so I got some treatment that was like, like pretty boring and I'm supposed to be like in a log cabin or something. I was like, okay, I don't really understand, but whatever. And then I was around, I was around the dinner table with my kids and my son was really into uh, the legend of King Arthur at the time. And he's like, can we be in it? Can I be King Arthur? I was like, okay, that's better. So I just called up the director and said, scratch what you had before new plan. My kids are starring in the video and it's going to be a medieval thing. Sorry, you gotta make it happen. Brilliant. Great idea. Love seeing the kids. Yeah. <laughs> I cried only one tear for us today. And I will wipe it away before the day breaks. And there is love in every part of me, I know. But the key is falling deep into the snow So when the spring comes I will find it And unlock my heart to unwind it And love will be reborn First of all, after reading the book, it was nice to see the title of your your album is Love Will Be Reborn. Like, okay, Martha's good. She's checking in with everyone. Was this your your pandemic uh, album? Project. You know, I wouldn't have thought it was a pandemic album, but at the same time, it really did. I think the album is, is well, I know the album is really about going from quite dark to light, you know, yeah. and, and, and I written, started writing the songs about five years ago, and it was the first record that I made in five years, so it's a long time, a long time since my last one. It's really like a, a real true midlife album, really deep, <laughs> in, right in the middle of my 40s. It came out of, you know, a really difficult divorce 
divorce with everything that entails, you know, with court and all sorts of terribleness and kind of just really rough. And, and then finding some really hopeful things at the end, including a new relationship, but also just in general, finding a way to sort of shed the past a little bit. And then it it timed out that I was making it during the pandemic, which made sense. And we were able to, whenever there was kind of a moment where me and the musicians were allowed to be in the same room together, we kind of would go in for two or three days whenever that was sort of happening on the COVID schedule, depending on what city you're in. And then I was also able to hand it to the producer, who's a incredible producer called Pierre Marchand, Canadian producer. And he was just holed up in his house in in the Laurentians, which is this mountain area outside of Montreal. And he just worked on it and I would send him tracks, you know, that I would record and he pulled it together and I think really beautifully. So a lot of the feeling of the record is, you know, coming out of a difficult time, sort of a spring-like feeling. So that timed well, I think, with I think how people are wanting to feel and wanting to find that feeling. And then the book is like the capper to that. Uh, well, absolutely. Yeah. I, mean, I think that the book is, you know, really kind of gets into that kind of dark, darker stuff. The book took a long time to write and really tells the story that a lot of people already know about me or a story that's been told before by journalists, but in my own words. And I think in my sort of how I would, how I sort of... You know, things that I felt were important to say. You color in a lot of the people may know the story, but they don't necessarily know your full vision of the story. Yeah. And also, I mean, there was a lot. I wrote a lot. It took many years. I wrote a lot down. I took a lot out because I also was like, I don't really need to say this about this person. Or I I think we get the gist, you know, with with, with what was happening. I don't need think we need another story with me getting shit faced. You know, like we got that, you know, we don't need another example of my dad not being great. I love him. We know that. But I wanted to, I think, touch on things that many of us on our families have have experienced, uh, you know, whether that's divorce and separation, whether that's complicated relationships between siblings, and then some other subjects that I think for women are particularly taboo to talk about, things like abortion and drugs and alcohol and feeling and how you feel about yourself. And although the book is quite personal, I do think a lot of people will hook in on it in a way where they don't feel it's completely foreign to them. You told it in such a way, in such a matter of fact way, but allowing for the complexities of the relationships. Right. Well, it's, it's short, you know, like, I mean, it's concisely written because a lot of the stuff is kind of hard. I weighed every sentence and, you know, every word, which I had no experience doing because I'm as a songwriter, it's a totally different process, you know, so I wanted to talk about stuff. It was never going to be a book about gardening or, you know, recipes. <laughs> it was always going to be about my family to some extent and me, but I wanted to say something too. For me, it kind of seems the same way with songwriting because, you know, I, I listen to Loudon's music a lot and he just lays it all out in the line. He tells the story. He tells exactly how he's feeling. <laughs> it's like a memoir. Every Everything right. that comes out. I mean, I think this is how the Wainwrights write or, you know, maybe this is like cathartic. Well, I mean, you said stories I might regret telling you. So it was probably easy to just kind of delete some stuff. Yeah, I had to delete some stuff. I mean, I, you know, the, the process was really different because, you know, when you're writing a song, you know, you're writing in a way where it's, you know, it's about you and your family. Are you and this guy? Are you and this girl or whatever? But once the listener hears it in that moment, uh, accompanied with the music, and the, the space where they might be at in their lives, it's automatically theirs. 
You know what I mean? That's okay. there. It's for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, you know, to, to identify with, to feel, to, to interpret how they want. I think with writing the book, you know, in black and white on the page, you know, forever there printed on the shelf, <laughs> you know, not changing. Yeah. It's more concrete. And I find with music, you know, I've sung some of the same songs for over 20 years, 25 years, and they, they can take on new meaning. Some of my old songs, you know, when I sing them at 45, it's different when I wrote them at 25, you know, and so there's a more of a fluidity, and of course, with the poetry of music and the sound, with instrumentation, you can change the tempo, you can change the tone, it depends on how your voice is happening at that moment, whereas the book seems something that sort of has to be sort of chosen to say really as i said kind of weighed weeded through in the editing process i also i have two kids you know so i wanted to protect them you know i I, i'm happy to i don't want to have to censor myself but i i don't i didn't want them to pick up the book and read you know trashing their dad that's not going to be good i had to really kind of think a lot about it a lot of stuff i put on the page that i really like but i just was like no i'm not going to do i'm not going to do that i'm just going to cry yeah. yeah. Archive, let's put it that way. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have any family members read any of it before you published it? Um, a little bit, not too much, you know, and, and I uh, because I just felt I didn't want to have to answer to them. You know, it's my story and especially with my family where I've always had to sort of literally sort of fold them into my own life. I mean, we all have to do that to an extent with our families, but I've had to do that in a public way, you know. Right. I definitely had my aunt Teddy, who the book is the book is dedicated to my dad and to his sister Teddy, who died uh, in 2020. She would read drafts, and you know she would give me her advice. But I didn't really want too much advice. I, what I did is I would call people up and sort of interview them and say, "Am I remembering this correctly? Did that happen? Did that not happen?" Kind of fact check. And especially with Rufus, you know, because I talk a little bit about our childhood, and then I go into some stuff about how our mom felt about his sexuality and some of the stories that I remember as a young person or that I had heard. And I was like, "No, I, this is sort of my interpretation. Is that correct?" And he would say you know, yes, that's correct. And so he knew what I, what was in there, you know, just by me asking those questions and me talking to him about it. My father knew what would be in the book because I had to get clearance for the use of some of his um, lyrics from songs. And so just by needing <laughs> that clearance, and I needed the clearance in writing. So it wasn't just like, hey, dad, thank you. Can I have this? Like giving him some wine so he forgets he gave me clearance. <laughs> you know, so he knew what was going to be spoken about and then I talked to him about it and I said look these are all things that people know you've written about them in your book uh, you've sort of expressed your side of the story this is going to be sort of my side of the story it's going to be a little different but um he read it after the fact and and accepted and, and actually very much enjoyed it so I'm I was really relieved for that did you feel the same way about his book? I felt the same way about his book in different ways. Loudon's book touches on a lot of stuff, but it really kind of stays in a safe way, you know, and it's really more about some of the music aspect of it and the family stuff, you know, I, I think it's how he can express it. You know, that's how, that's how he does it, you know, and we're really different in that way. I sort of like kind of go deep down into it and sort of get into the swampy bits. And I think that honestly, he appreciates that about me. I'm going to say that. I, I hope that's the case. You know, I read some of his book. I didn't love the chapter about my mom. So I closed up, but then I went back and I enjoyed some other chapters a lot. 
<laughs> it seems healthy. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh. You know, I was funny. You know, I just ran into um, Teddy Thompson. You know, whose dad is is uh, Richard Thompson, yeah. and his mom is Linda, Tom- Linda Thompson. Richard had uh, has just wrote a book a, a few months back. I came I came out I think or last year. Teddy was like, you know, saying that he was like reading through the book to try and find something <laughs> new. And no, it's the guy that we know that we all know and that he loves and knows. But there wasn't a, any big reveal, you know, in the book. Yeah. <laughs> That's yes. what everyone wants to see. Really enjoying our talk with Martha Wainwright, but we cut this in half so we can make some money. Money, 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 money. All right. <laughs> we'll be right back. Welcome back to the What Difference Does It Make podcast and our guest, Martha Wainwright. Okay, so we we noticed in the book that sometimes you refer to your dad by his name and sometimes you refer to him as dad. Yeah, well, that's, um, and I do do that, I think, with my mom, too. I say Kate a lot. I mean, I say, I use their names in the book. I I would never use their names to their faces or in talking about them to other people as my parents. But that being said, when I talk about them as artists, of course, that's how I refer to them. But I remember once calling my dad Loudon when I was speaking to him when I was like 14 and he was not happy. He got really pissed off and he said, don't call me that. I also, you know, I'm, I'm like 45, I'll be 46. When I'm on the stage talking about music and these great songs, do I want to say, my dad's song says that. You know, I'm like, no, it's Loudon. We know him as Loudon, you know, and he's yeah. an artist. And I felt the same thing about my mom. She wanted me to think of her as my mother, of course. But she was also this incredible artist, yeah. you know, Kate McGarrigal. And that's really yeah. worth something, too. And I appreciate that about both of them. Let's go to when you were 14 for a second. Because okay. <laughs> I, I guess... Okay, no that, problem. I'm I just going to turn into my 14 self. All the wrinkles are going to go I don't, Yeah. I mean, it is a transitional time in... in a young person's life. So you found yourself in New York City with just your dad. It was just you and your dad in Lower East End. How do you think (laughs) that shaped your life? Just you and your dad in New York City in, was it the early 90s or? Early 90s. Well, I think for me, it was a great time, even though turning 14 was hard and being rejected by guys was hard or whatever. But I really changed. My eyes were opened up to New York City. I'd grown up in Montreal. I'd gone to New York for long weekends and in the summertime and at Christmas. It was still really a big deal to move to New York City and to have that incredible experience. And I went to Friends Seminary, which is, I was a pretty fancy school with all those kind of famous kids and the kids were a lot more mature than I was you know they were kind of advanced so I was just like overwhelmed with that and dealing with all of that stuff I think for my dad in contrast it was a lot harder for him I, I didn't know what the big problem was I was just being I was just acting out as a teenager but by the end of the year he kicked me out and I didn't that kind of hurt my feelings a little bit. I mean he kicked me out he just sent me home he's like okay I'm done but I think he had never brought up any of his children really And so I think for him, it was a big shocker. I got 
So I got so close to him, I, I think, in a way, and maybe a little bit under his skin. So I wouldn't have changed it, but I don't know if it was as easy for him. And it definitely changed my personality. I mean, I left Montreal kind of a nervous, weird 13-year-old, and I came back kind of much more savvy and you know, smoking and drinking and being attitudinal and, and terrible. <laughs> as 15-year-olds are. It seemed perfectly normal to me. Hey, rags. And then discovering his songs that were about you during that time and what you mentioned in the book that you kind of on your own just to kind of discover to learn about his life um, and then all yeah. of a sudden you're a character in his songbook yeah I mean I yeah. guess by getting close to to the songwriter like a writer if this happens you know then you end up in their book or you end up in their song and that doesn't always sit pretty with everybody I always appreciate it especially as a, as a kid hearing my name and songs like happy birthday Martha which is about him not being at my fifth birthday. And, and when I listen to it now, it's terribly sad and depressing and horrible in a way. But when you're young, just hearing your dad say, I love you, I can't be there for your birthday and saying your name over and over, it felt good. So I didn't understand the whole concept of the song, but nor, nor did I want to, or should I? I didn't want to make it a problem as I started to hear more from my mother what their marriage was really like or whatever. You know, then I started to sort of understand more the subtleties and or the not so subtle subtleties in the songwriting and it is a way that we speak to each other it's a language and I think the language of music is as good as any I appreciate it and I think also for someone like Loudon who's not who is not you know the most open and free person and he's a little nervous that's how he has to do it and if that's how he has to do it then my ears are opened and I will interpret that his <laughs> lyrics as, as I see fit <laughs> As I wish to, yeah. By the way, just going back to 14 years old and moving to New York and living with your dad, that alone, never mind the, the dynamics, that age alone right. is hard for a kid. You know, it takes its own toll. And then, like you said, being sent back at the end of it. Yeah, I think that that was the hardest part was what you don't want me to say. I think that when you haven't brought up your kids on a daily basis, it's not easy. And I know that my dad, the life that he chose was more a life of work. And that's that's what it is. I don't know. I think it's okay. I I, I know it's, it is okay because it is. Yeah. yeah. But accepting that as a 45-year-old is one thing, accepting it or yeah. understanding it as a 14-year-old. I definitely had a lot of sad feelings about it as I did, you know, about, you know, my brother being successful or skinnier and better looking or as it added to the pot of insecurity and teenage angst, certainly, yeah. you know. Uh, one of the things that I noticed with my family, and, and I think a lot of families hopefully can do this, is that whatever sort of conflict there's been, you know, even though some of it's been quite intense, there's been children not wanted, there's been divorce stories, there's been a certain amount of rejection, there's always been an incredible amount of love and support around it in a way where I always know that if I have a problem, I can go to my dad and talk to him about it, that he is all ears, that he's quite sensible. That's a lot. You know, that's a lot. Got to bring a lot of comfort. Because we're in L.A., there were a couple trips to L.A. that seemed memorable. Yeah. Let's let's start off with the most innocent one. That was when you went to Disneyland, but you were at the Chateau. 
and it was yeah. Grammy week. <laughs> was that your first experience with like the industry or like to learn about well, what? Yeah. I mean, that was my first experience with the big industry, you know, because I had been exposed to all sorts of folky people coming into our house with their banjos and their mandolins <laughs> and their weirdness and their kind of sweet, whatever. And then, uh, but of course I was listening to Cindy Lauper and the Eurythmics and Prince, and that's what I was listening to, you know? And so to then, be kind of you know when you're when you're a kid and you kind of only half understand what's happening you're like okay we're gonna go to LA that's gonna be fun we're gonna and then you get there and you're like oh my god it's real you know and for uh, you know being from Montreal you know it's it's a big it looks very different you know let's say what what I remember is seeing how kind of happy and excited my mother was to be there too and to be in that space and to feel among her people in a way in terms of just people in the industry and I think that that was really that's really meaningful. And I know that feeling where you want to, you know, you get there to the festival and, you know, you want to feel part of it, you know, and you want your kids to know that you're a part of it too. But then seeing uh, Cindy Lauper in the hot tub, very nervously wondering (laughs) if she's going to get the award. I remember distinctly seeing Annie Lennox come into the Shadow Mormont, into the vestibule area. And it was just kind of very overwhelming for me. And I was just, I I mean, I think clearly Rufus got the bug because he, he ended up moving to LA when he was 21 or something. I mean, that's really been his his musical home is Los Angeles since the beginning through Van Dyke Parks and Lenny Warnaker at DreamWorks originally. So I think he must have clapped that early on for him. And I ended up going more to New York when I was 21. It's such a magical... When I was going to title the chapters, I didn't end up titling them because I had titles for some and then titles for others. And I was coming up with these crappy titles. So I was like, you know, let's just not title them. But I did have a chapter called I Love LA because I just always adored it. And maybe it's because I, I got to be right away exposed to kind of the greatness of it. So, you know, going there for a Grammy week, you know, and then yeah. going there and hanging out at Stephen Still's house and but then going to Huntington Gardens and then hanging out with some really kind of groovy people in Echo Park and Silver Lake, like in the late 90s. And, you know, seeing different aspects of it that wasn't just sort of only Hollywood Boulevard. I never felt that. And I also, also because I was never really in the film industry, I was only connected to the music industry and the kind of more sort of a grittier, artier side of it. I always just adored it and still do. Were you with Rufus when he was being wined and dined for his first record deal? That was kind of when you returned to L.A. and got to hang out? That was out. when I returned to L.A. and I got to meet Lenny Warnaker and also John Bryan, who was producing the record, which I know was, I talk about this in the book, kind of a difficult process, but what a great product they made. It was kind of worth it, I think, in many ways. But, you know, we went to, went to the Ivy, which I talk about a little bit, which <laughs> I, I don't, I'm sure it's not as in favor, but at the time was probably a pretty big deal. I think that that was also, I hate to put it this way, but it did always feel like there were these things that would always kind of happen that made me feel that would set me back in a way, whether it's my dad saying, you got to go back home after living with him for a year. Or I think, you know, Rufus having an incredible success for uh, by my standards, because music is quite out there, you know, and he was this lanky gay guy at the piano. It seemed kind of really amazing that he would be given as much support as he did because he's so great also. So that, that of course, makes sense. You know, I just sort of was like, oh, how am I going to do this myself? And I feel like there was already the two parents that were very, like, critically acclaimed, although not huge stars, but critically 
critically acclaimed and then Rufus became very critically acclaimed and I think that by the by that time I was already writing songs but it was like well we can't have another one that's good you know what I mean that's gonna that's gonna be the kind of the crappy runt <laughs> we have to deal with somehow well you did touch on that with your mom who yeah. said what do you want to do sing and dance for a living is that that was the quote that you said <laughs> I mean but you took that as like yes I do is that yeah I do but I realized I think being surrounded by these people who had a very distinct styles and were very creative that I was going to have to do the work and craft the craft and it was not as easy or obvious for me because I kind of lacked a little bit of confidence I think my musical style was a little bit like confused I liked it but it was sort of like I think for record labels early on they were like you know what is this is this kind of country is this rock this is not pop you know you're kind of you're not you, you you don't dress a certain way or you don't look a certain way you know I think it was hard for me to be put into a box and and lots of producers wanted to work with me you know like Rick Chertoff for instance who would done Cindy Lauper's record and Joan Osborne and, and you know had huge success and I'd be like yeah I should do that and I would get into the studio with them and just kind of fuck it up in a way I just didn't want to change my songs you know I just didn't want to do it I was just difficult and I was kind of I was nice but I was like no this is the weird chord I was going I, it was going to take a minute then I really started going to New York more and hanging out more on the Lower East Side and it took time to find the style I needed to do a thousand shows or whatever and, yeah. and really gain the confidence to walk around with the guitar and I felt like I needed to pay my dues maybe like everyone yeah do you want to touch on that the, the one song the, I think you said your first good song bloody mother fucking asshole do you want to, <laughs> what what is it about that song for you that like hit all the right notes poetry is no place for a heart that's a whore I'm young and I'm strong, but I feel old and tired Over fire And I've been poked and stoked, it's all smoke There's no more fire, only desire For you, whoever you are For you, whoever you are Oh, you say my time here has been some sort of joke that I've been messing around Some sort of incubating period But when I really come around I'm cracking out And you have no idea No idea how it feels To be on your own In your own home With the fucking phone And the mother of bloom In your bedroom I think that the song, you know, the song is called Bloody Motherfucking Asshole because that's a phrase that I say over and over at the end of the song. As I was writing the song and it was just about done, the words came out. But the song, the the words that were before are very good too. They're just, um, the words at the end really packed the punch. It it was very subversive to do that in many ways, especially from a white girl in her early 20s with an acoustic guitar. I think it's kind of surprising and quite edgy 
energy for that sound for the guitar you know acoustic kind of folky sound or whatever but the song or the, 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 the body of the song is really about wanting to be taken seriously taken seriously by the industry taken seriously by my dad taken seriously by myself you know and wanting to be heard you know and so I think it was really a woman a woman's song a young woman's song I, I think that that really has resonated with young women even to this day everyone who listens to it and I remember seeing this when I would play it you know they would kind of close their eyes and sing along it's like you understand right away it's like this song has nothing to do with me you know this has to do with whatever that person is who's going you know with their eyes closed singing it out loud they are having their own connection with it. And that, to me, seemed to be the power of the song. And that I felt lucky that it kind of came through me, but it seemed like it was a feeling and an idea that a lot of people, a lot of us have. That's what you touched on in the difference between a book and a song right there. That right. was, yeah. yeah. Suddenly it's not your song anymore. It's whoever here, yeah. everyone's interpretation yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And probably don't know it as you're as you're writing it or even you know singing it in the beginning, but now no, you know you think it's you're you're just sort of trying to find words that are meaningful that rhyme somewhat, you know that sound good with <laughs> yeah. these these chords that are rhythmically interesting and that are expressing the pain or the sadness or the anger or the happiness or whatever that emotion is in your chest. You know, what is it that I want to, that I can put into words that is not just crap or pointless or, you know, I've never written a song to, I think, I think probably like most songwriters, maybe up in the 90 percentiles of it, you know, they're writing songs because they want to write a hit or they want to have success or they want to, because that's really a motivation. And unfortunately, I've never had that feeling. (laughs) I mean, I wish I did. I really did, you know. You say you wrote like, you write like five songs a year. Is that your average now? Yeah, I don't write a lot of songs. I mean, I'm... I'm mopping floors at my music venue most of the time and getting my kids into high school and trying to get them to do their homework and I'm traveling around a lot playing gigs. And then I get like, I start to get really extra nervous. I'm like, why am I so upset? And I realize, okay, I need to sit down and write a song because this is the thing that's going to keep this ship Do you start to relate to Kate more often now because like, oh, okay, this is what she, this is what my mom had to go through. I mean, it's kind of the same situation or similar, you think? Well, it's similar. I mean, I've returned to her, like I returned to Montreal to have my second son. And so I've been here now eight years which was maybe, you know, you know, it's not like a great career choice necessarily to go from New York to Montreal, but it was better for the kids, certainly. And also my family are here and the, the, I, I inherited my mom's house when she died. And so to me, it's very, very meaningful. You know, she died when she was so young. She was 63, you know, and so I felt like I also have a responsibility to continue her legacy a little bit through her music and to, you know, I wanted to to keep her close to me. I do feel finally with this book and writing uh, down, you know, what happened to her and telling that story a little bit, I think has helped me to sort of finally kind of really let go, though, to really close the chapter on that and sort of look more to the future. Were you journaling at all at the time or did you have to like go back in time? I'm so bad. I've tried journaling and I get like a crappy sentence and then it's just like a list of what I need to do or like you know, <laughs> shopping list or yeah. something, you know, or doodle or something or a phone number pay tickets pay tickets pay tickets 
that's yeah. my that's my journal. Taxes? Um, you know, so no, it was terrible. So I I had to sort of start and I started in kind of a harsh place with the, in this book, you know, we sort of start at the beginning. Yeah. But I thought that that was, that was the start. And then I just sort of go from there and just try to sort of remember feelings that I had, people that I remember telling a little bit the story of my parents, you know, because I knew that people wanted to read a little bit about Rufus and Loudon and Kate, you know, so I felt the responsibility, you know, I thought I had a structure in that way, but I filled it in with things that I felt were important to me. Did you have to talk to old boy? I, I know you, you didn't mention it to other people. There's like, only like one the, guy that I had, because I had to call, you know, when there's always a legal team who goes right. through something, and a lot of them was like, you got to call this person to say you're taking poppers, and they're there, and they're doing poppers. <laughs> drug and alcohol, like drug-related, because of legal substances. And okay. Stuff. Did anybody say no? Everyone was fine. I mean, most most of those people are sober, you know, so people who are sober in general are happy to have it be talked about, you know, and kind of show that side of it. And they're happy to be alive, basically. There was one guy who I I wanted to say something about him and it was in the book and he said, no, I don't want you to put it in. But that was it. Okay. And also, I didn't, you know, I'd written a lot down about, about Brad Albetta, who's a great musician, who's my ex-husband and the father of my kids. But I would go back and read it, and it was just shitty. You know, it was just too depressing or too crappy. And I was like, you know what? I might not feel this way in five years, and my kids don't want me to do this. Yeah. You know, so I just sort of took it out. I left a few little jabs in because I felt I had to. But, you know, <laughs> pretty minimal. <laughs> yeah, you could read into it if you, if you want to, but it wasn't super harsh. And you did a couple of, you, you did say, and I don't need to say any more about that. Yeah. <laughs> because you're part of, you know, music royalty you and you hung out with a lot of kids of also royalty I, and it's because of their last names. I, I was wondering like when you're, when you're younger, like, and just before you became an artist, like, I don't know if any of these other artists are like, do we have to use our last names? Or did you ever want to be like, uh, you know, Princess Martha or, you know, like no, someone. I, I had some, somebody asked me recently because uh, they want to do a Skype. I think I might I have a Skype coming up or something. And I was like, what's my Skype name? I couldn't remember. And I was like, oh, yeah, my Skype name is Gabby Holton, which is, I think, my stripper name, which is like my oh. middle name and the first street I lived on. And, but I definitely went through a period where I did not. I, I wanted to try having another name. And then I realized that that would make it even harder. In a way, maybe it would have made it easier. But, you know, I'm from a folk tradition and I and I guess I never thought that my parents were so famous that it would be so impossible to usurp them in any way. I finally have now after 25 years. <laughs> it wasn't as intense as being Sean Lennon or Harper Simon or whatever. I mean, I know those guys have a sort of father-son problem that I don't really have. So you know, I, I've seen a lot of people, sons of, you know, have to struggle with, you know, how they're going to make it or whatever. And it just takes time. you got to pay your dues. You can't just hitch a ride to your parents' wagon and automatically expect to be uh, in the same place in the rock and roll tower of song. It's a moment. Good luck, Adam Cohen. It's not going to happen. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and your own kids, do your kids now have a propensity yeah, for song? 
Yeah, totally. One of them, the eldest Archangelo, has a band called Motor Skills. It's basically what Ursa has been of the pandemic as a rehearsal spot for his band. And he totally has the bug and he plays bass like his dad, which I'm sort of like dreading and also going, well, that could be good because, you know, it's not that, you know, it could be good for him because it brings him a lot of joy and a lot of happiness. And uh, my other son has totally rejected this kind of music and is like into, you know, hip hop and rap and everything that is not folky or whatever and can't stand my music but every once in a while when i'm on stage he kind of climbs on he, he, no, he doesn't crawl he's, he walks he's, he's eight he, <laughs> he gets up on stage without me asking and sort of stands between me and the microphone to stop me in a way you know he doesn't like it but at the same time i looked down and be like you're actually on stage so there must be something you like about this you yeah. know so i think he's going to surprise us all and sort of come at it a different way Hip hop and folk, it's the same. It's kind of the same, comes from the same. It, There's it's, a it's Yeah. I mean, yeah. important with the words and, and also not and also being uh, trying to tell the story of your generation. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I'm going to tell them that. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, great. no, 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 no. <laughs> All right, right, right. You can't you get yeah. that mother-son dynamic. <laughs> Mom um, is always uncool. That You can't be cool in their eyes ever, no matter what. Okay, but I am curious, is there anyone in your family, even on the periphery, that isn't in, in the arts? Is there, do you have any accountants or? or? Um, no, that's not allowed. <laughs> we killed them all. We bring them back oh, yeah. and we incinerate those ones. Yeah. No, I mean, no, I have, yeah, no, there are, there are, there's a couple of cousins who really can't sing and it's really weird. <laughs> oh. <laughs> when you're at Christmas, when you're at Christmas or whatever, or, you know, the tribute show and they're there standing on stage, like singing along and you're just like, what's going on? They don't know. Oh. Was, so you stand back there, over there. Was Teddy a singer, or is that why she went? No, into- she was a terrible singer, okay. but she was the first to admit it. She never, well, she didn't say she was not artisticy in, in an obvious way at all. But she did the other thing, which was to be Loudon and the Roaches manager for like yeah. twenty five years, and then Rufus and my manager for a while, and then she produced the, the Christmas shows as well as the Kate tribute shows, and she was the one who was like holding it all together. Yeah, she puts this circus together. That's- that's that's the hard part. Counting the, the money and trying to make it. I remember one Christmas show we did, and we had a merch table. I guess it was cash, and it was a big Christmas show. And show, so a lot of people there, and there was all this cash. And she was so excited, you know. Like I remember, like chain smoking cigarettes and a big glass of wine, and you know, she was like really excited about the money. And then we had this after party, and we were all hanging out at the after party, lots of wine and everything else. And we were in one room, and then she was staying upstairs. It was like a big. Airbnb that we're all staying at and she was at her room upstairs and she said Martha come upstairs come upstairs I was like oh my god what are we gonna do like coke no (laughs) go upstairs into the room and she had I guess she it was exciting to her she had like laid down the cash on the mattress as a sort of joke and I was like that's it (laughs) it took up up like a quarter of the mattress and it was like a little like sporadically placed and I was like this is not this is not good <laughs> but she was so happy. You know, I wrote it for her. But in that way, the folk music was not like the hip hop music. Yeah, well, like, yeah, that's hip hop is where the money is. Okay, <laughs> got to follow the money. <laughs> that's what your son's going to do. Follow the money. Jane Arden said in your book, she can't wait for volume two. Is that in a plan? Well, it would be good. I would like to. You know, and I, I, I mean, I, I don't want to wait another 
gazillion years, but, you know, I do have some other thoughts and it's definitely because I have kids in school, you know, it's a good thing for me to do, to write rather than to be on the road all the time, playing gigs and touring. So I'm thinking about it. I have some ideas. I have some ideas. Uh cooking up something right. you can also write write a, a fi- write about a, a fictional musical family <laughs> yeah i know i you know sure oh yeah oh there oh I, I just saw a light bulb go off in her head like that <laughs> that's i think you hit on something holly is there one song from your mom that means the most to you mm-hmm. or is there anything that when you think of your mom you think of or you think of a song or something well, I think, you know, I think my, one of my mom's uh, most well-known songs is a song called Mendocino. Wow. And I think it's such a beautiful song because it really, it's a love story, sort of. It's about her actually running off with the guy while she was actually married to my dad. I think there was a lot of that going on. But it's about time and love and space and freedom and youth. And it's and you have these big big moments with the ocean and and the redwood forest and the sun and the sun setting and the sun rising, but also these ideas of where we are on, on the planet and as, as people, you know, trying to make sense of it. And I, and I just love that song. We'd like to bring Linda back on now to sing a song with us about California. She knows all about it. So is Linda Ronstadt. Have you have you sung that song with with all three, like the three of you on stage, or Emmy Lou and no, Linda? I, no, no, oh. no. I, I mean, I've I've uh, I never had the opportunity to sing with Linda. She did come to a couple of shows of mine in the Bay Area, which was so amazing to have her there. And my God, I sang better when she was in that room. I was like, God damn it, Linda Ronstadt's here. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna work hard tonight and and try and show her what I got because I'm so amazed and moved by her. Let me ask you also about background singing. You said you you didn't enjoy it. It's like 20 feet from stardom. That was the documentary. But yeah, 30 feet, I can't, it was a great documentary. I mean, I love backup singing for Rufus, but it was really not what I, what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And I had the opportunity to sing with a lot of people doing backup. But I, you know, really quickly, I would end up sort of changing my part and trying to stick out and getting a little closer to the front of the stage. It was pretty obvious that I was not backup singing material. (laughs) I'm not against it. I like singing with people. You know, I'm a folky too. So I like the idea of singing together, but 
but uh, my years as a backup singer are over. <laughs> okay, fair enough. That's good. well. That's good. We're more. We're the better for it, right? Okay. Well, okay. Go back to camping and doing your uh, your. Uh, I have to go back to my life, actually. Guys. Yeah. Okay. Enjoy your life. Yeah. <laughs> I had to go back to the cult, actually. I have I have some more. Oh, sorry. For now, for the, the the band's coming in. Who's playing tonight? Who you got on the on the? Tonight we have a bunch of young musicians from the McGill from McGill College who are doing a jam for justice. So they're gonna trash the place and lose money for a good cause. I don't. They have they have different. Um, I don't think tonight the money is not going to the war tonight. But I think that. So part of it is, and so it's going to be lots of young people in here. I'll have to get someone okay. to do that. So you're not going to take all. all the cash and, and spread it along the bed and just like, look how much money <laughs> yeah. we made. Uh, no, it's going to be like some, yeah. It's not like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a feel good. You'll feel, it's a feel, feel good. good. That's right. It's yeah. It's a good journey. Yeah. So the journey continues. That's, that's wonderful. It's, uh, it's wonderful to talk to you. The book is amazing. We, I, I loved it so much. And uh, as someone also said in the book, it, it's too short. We need more. So stories I might regret telling you, Martha Wainwright. Thank you so very much. Thank you joy. so much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you both very much. I uh, had fun. Oh, uh, we did too. Us too. All right. Cheers. Thank you, Martha. Bye. Stay cool. Yeah, yeah, we're trying. Yeah, I know you will. You too. <laughs> All right, Holly. So, still want to be best friends with Martha? She is the coolest, the most fun. She's smart. She's talented. Yes, she's just cool. Okay, if we want to stalk her, we can go to Ursa in Montreal and we know where she is. So, yeah, we can find her at any time. You can bet I will. Okay, oh. good. Okay, so. Uh, Sorry, Martha, if that scares you. Stalker alert. Stories I Might Regret Telling You is the book. Her new album is called Love Will Be Reborn. I also recommend listening to that, checking that out because it's really good. And it's actually after reading the book, it was kind of good to listen to the album because it's where she is now and she's in a much better place than where she was when she was much younger. You can see them as going in tandem, right? I agree. I think Martha agreed with you when you said that. Yeah. Yes. So you guys guys are best friends. I mean, that's, you guys agree on everything. (laughs) Wonderful. We have new episodes every Friday. Uh, You never know who's going to show up. So make sure to subscribe, write a review, tell us how much you love, what differences make. Uh, Let us know what we missed out on our interview or any experiences with Martha. We we love any, any input is is fun input. And check us out on social media at WDDIM podcast and on YouTube at what difference does it make podcast. That sounds great. Hey, and also we are a member of Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon has some fabulous music-related podcasts, so definitely check them out. Until next Friday, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 